0: your bibles to genesis chapter 50 we're going to conclude genesis and then move on into our beginning our study of the book of exodus and as we do so i want to just preface uh, with these remarks one it's very very important as we study through the bible and as you read through the bible each week and hopefully all of you are reading the bible in preparation for our studies The idea is that all of us are reading these passages. You have uh, on your notes uh, the readings for next weekend. As you read, bear in mind, and as we study, bear in mind that there is an unseen realm that impacts the seen realm. As we read, we're looking predominantly on on that which is seen, that which is visible. But that's not all there is. There's a whole unseen realm that profoundly impacts that which is seen, that which is visible. There's a third element that's very, very important. As we read through these passages, as we see the interaction, the interplay between the seen and the unseen, we also need to watch and say, what lessons may I learn from this history? What lessons may I learn from what God is, is revealing to me? so that I may apply them to my life, that I might benefit. If you read in 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 10, Paul talks about all the history of the Old Testament that God gives us. He says to the church, he said, these are given to us as examples, as illustrations, so we'll learn from them and not make the same mistakes Israel made. Okay, it's very, very important. Now, you're reading all week. You come to the weekend, we study the passage, we look at the passage, we deal with the problem passages, we get an overview. So uh, we're going to talk about all that we've read during the week. In the following week, you go to mini church and you draw out the applications that God has been speaking to your heart and you share, you give testimony with one another. This is what God's been saying to me. This is how I'm applying what God has been speaking to me as I've read and as we taught and studied over the weekend together. Are you with me? This is the process. So through those three avenues of input, the word of God may dwell richly in you, and you may profit greatly from it. Amen? Amen. All right, good. Now, if you're with us this morning and you're not a Christian yet, I say yet because you definitely will want to become a Christian. But if you're not a Christian yet, I want to ask you, you're going to be here for roughly another hour. So rather than waste the time, it would make sense to me that, and, and I want to ask you to do this. The best you're able, set aside your own intellectual, philosophical, cultural biases. Set them aside the best you're able for the moment. Listen. Pay attention. Follow along. And ask this one question in your own heart. Say, God, is this all really true? And if you're able to set aside your biases, if you really want to know... I promise you God will reveal himself to you and he'll confirm in your heart that this is true. And then should you undergo that process, should you be willing to risk, then I want to give you an opportunity at the end of our service to become a Christian and to put your faith in Jesus Christ. So I just want to tell you that up ahead. So if you're not a Christian yet, we're going to provide you that opportunity at the end of the service and uh, you have plenty of time to think about it, to weigh these issues, and hopefully come to a decision that would bring you into life okay let's look at Genesis chapter 50 I want to point out one verse verse 20 which really significantly summarizes all of God's plan and purpose all of his work it's in the context of Joseph's life that we studied last week the situation is that Joseph's father the father of his older brothers all the sons of Jacob Israel who sold Joseph into slavery Jacob dies. The other brothers now are fearful that Joseph who has risen to be number 2 in Egypt an extremely powerful man second to Pharaoh himself. They're fearful that now Joseph will take reprisals, will take revenge on his brothers for selling him years earlier into slavery. But Joseph's response absolutely startles them, as you might well imagine. He says to them in verse 20, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Is it mine to bring revenge? You intended to harm me, But God intended it for good. And what was the good? To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. What you intended for evil, he says, I have this perspective that God really intended it for good. And the good he intended was for the saving of lives, your lives and the lives of many to come. Joseph was a man who developed a perspective that there was a sovereign God, a loving God who was in control of all details of life. And even when the bitterness came into his life, even when the difficult times, the trials and the struggles came into his life, Joseph was able to embrace them. And that perspective kept him from becoming bitter against his own brothers and, and uh, tempted to take reprisal. He understood God's plan for his life. And God wanted to use him, he was a yielded vessel that God would use to bring about a great redemption, a great salvation for Israel that would open the door for a great salvation for all mankind. You have to begin to kind of grasp the overall picture, the broad brushstrokes of God working in history as you see and read these passages. Now there's a lesson here for us. What's a lesson? All of us find ourselves at the point of receiving injustices, right? Right? There are people who mistreat us, betray us, do all sorts of things against us, and they mean it for our harm. But by the very fact that it happens to us says that God has allowed it, and He's not lost control, but He's got it all in control. Romans 8.28 says, And our God will work all things for our good because we love Him and have been called according to His purpose. Joseph loves God, and he has been called according to God's purpose. We love God, and we've been called according to His purpose. Now, His purpose is to make us more like Jesus. And so what God does is He uses all these difficult events, all the opposition, He overrules it, turns it around, transforms it, and uses it for our good and His purpose, for the saving of many lives. God is working in each and every one of us. So when difficult circumstances come into your life, when opposition comes into your life, when people come against you, Adopt an attitude that God's allowing this because He's working in your life and He's going to work through your life. So you don't need to be bitter. You don't need to be fearful. You don't need to be anxious. And you don't need to take revenge. You don't need to get them back. Indeed, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, if your enemy is hungry, gloat. <laughs> Say, ha, 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 now you're getting yours, Right? If your enemy is thirsty, rejoice! That pain in the neck is finally getting what he deserves. Is that what he says? No. If your enemy is hungry, if your enemy is thirsty, what? Feed him. You give him something to eat. You give him something to drink. And if we could take the time, you could just have you close your eyes and you imagine your worst enemy, the person that would most likely rip you off, and you see them in a position of need, and you can imagine yourself going to them in that position of need and you meeting their need. Most of us would find that very difficult. To play out in our thought life because we'd be very resistant to doing it but you see this is what's important that we see because this the, this character trait in Joseph is the very character trait that is to mark Israel trusting God that's the very thing that's to mark us that's our heritage trusting God regardless of the circumstance rate us regardless of the situation we are going to trust you oh God that means that we're going to do things your way We're going to do things your way. We're not going to trust to expediencies. We're not going to trust to uh, human wisdom. We'll see in a minute here in Exodus a couple of examples of the folly of trusting in human wisdom and what it leads to, destruction every time. Now let's look to the book of Exodus. Exodus is now a continuation of what was begun in the book of Genesis. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 3, we saw the fall of man, we saw the disobedience of man, the rebellion of man, seeking to be independent of God rather than remain in a state of dependency upon him. And as a result, sin came in, man fell from a state of perfection to a state of imperfection, a state of uh, sinfulness, uh, fallenness, whatever you want to call it. And right after that, God begins the process which will lead to redemption. Redemption. The whole rest of the book of Genesis is the unfolding of God's preparation to bring about the redemption of Israel, which will set the stage for the redemption of mankind. Indeed, uh, the book of Exodus is the book of redemption. That is the theme, redemption. And uh, we see that Exodus... In in being the book of redemption, the word Exodus literally means the outgoing, the outgoing of Israel from Egypt. They're redeeming, being redeemed from slavery and from bondage. Now in continuing the story, we read that when Jacob and his family went down to Egypt from Canaan, there were 70 in all. When they left, there were more than 200 or I'm, I'm sorry, more than two million, roughly, 600,000 men, plus women plus children. So if you figure most of the men were married, there, there was a wife, so you, you practically double that, and plus you add odd number of children, and you've got roughly two million people. That is in a period of 400 years, while they're down in Egypt, multiplying in a land called the land of Goshen. That was the best place the best piece of egyptian soil that was the ideal setting and so we see that they come out now and they're roughly two million strong in fact you might want to mark this and go back and look it up later on in genesis chapter 15 verse 13 when god is is speaking to abraham and telling abraham about him being the father of multitudes of people he tells abraham that his offspring would be down in Egypt, he doesn't say Egypt, but he says under foreign power, they'd be enslaved in a foreign land for 400 years. So Abraham already knows about it. And Abraham passes it to his son Isaac, and then Isaac to Jacob, and Jacob to his sons. So this is not a mystery to them that they're going to be in Egypt for 400 years. Okay? And it's rehearsed in Galatians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Now quickly, the structure of the book of Uh, Exodus is important to understand. There's three major sections. We'll study the three. The first one this morning, in the first 18 chapters, this has to do with the actual Exodus itself. Uh, Israel actually leaving Egypt. The second major section has to do with the giving of the law, and the third major section has to do with the tabernacle, and that speaks of the privilege and the relationship that Israel will have with God via the tabernacle. Now, let's look at uh, the book of Exodus. Now, we're going to go through it and, uh, with some rapidity, so please follow along. I'll point out the verses and the passages in which we're located. In verse 7 of chapter 1, we see encompassed in that one verse the 430 years in which Israel grows. So, in that one verse, is encompassed 430 years of time, we're told uh, that uh, Joseph and all of his brothers in that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them, the land of Goshen, not the whole land of Egypt, just the land of Goshen, and that was the choicest part of Egypt. Now, what happens in verse 8 now is... This is a very key and transitional verse because this sets the stage for a new direction for Israel. We're told that a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Now, we're not told how he came to power. If he came from within, then he, he knew the traditions of Joseph. Presumably, he was someone from the outside who came and conquered Egypt and now began to rule. He overthrew the existing government. So a new king is ruling. And then he says, he looks around, surveys the whole uh, land of Egypt, and he says, now there's a certain people, the Israelites, and they have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. Now it is common practice for a usurper to be paranoid about being usurped. Are you with me? So right away, this new king surveys all the land that he's conquered. He sees this minority group up here in the north, and he says, we better manage them. Paranoia over a minority group will always give rise to prejudice. Always. You see it in our own culture today. You have a, a group of people, you have the, the, the Hispanics, you have the, the black community, you have the Asian community, you have the, the Filipino community, whatever community, minority community is, and it's not part of the major established white traditional community, you're always going to have people, though they pay lip service to that minority community, in providing and protecting them, when that community begins to Upwardly rise, when they gain upward mobility, when they begin to become educated, begin to spread out, they begin to become numerous, fruitful, you always have the established community threatened. And that established community will find a way to repress that community. It's paranoia that leads to prejudice, and prejudice leads to injustice. You see this happen right here. The Pharaoh, this new king, embarks upon a plan based on his own human wisdom to limit Israel. Now remember what we said earlier. We said you can't lose sight of the unseen realm impacting the seen realm. So Pharaoh is not acting all on his own. He's being stimulated by Satan. It's Satan's stated goal to wipe out Israel, God's chosen people. If you remember back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God pronounces the curse on the serpent, he says to him, there will be hatred between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Now, he's, God's referring to a specific offspring, that is Jesus. But the offspring of a woman in the terms of Israel is also included. Satan's stated purpose is to wipe out God's children, wipe out the chosen people, Israel. And here we see him try to bring that plan into uh, effect through Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh, resorting to his own human ploys, his own wisdom, which is folly, is going to lead to destruction and downfall. What he does is he goes to the Hebrew midwives, and he says to them, now look, when you're helping a, a Hebrew woman give birth to a child, if it's a boy child that's born, kill it. If it's a girl child, let it live. If he can wipe out all the boys in that next generation, he wipes out effectively Israel in the future generations. He knows that. Now, the Hebrew midwives refuse to obey him. They don't do it to his face, but they go away, but they don't do what he says. I think in there you have a rationale for our present pro-life movement when you see that God blesses those women because they refuse to kill infant children. We're just a little bit more technologically invo- advanced. We go into the womb and kill them. We don't wait till they're born. God doesn't want these children killed. He wants them born. He's caused them to come to life. He's conceived them. And he means for them to be born. And it's a heinous crime, part of the established community, to do away with. And that's the greatest oppression on, on, on minority women, minority mothers, It's to force them, to convince them, to kill those babies, to make them participants in that heinous crime, which leads to further destruction in their own lives, if you follow them. So anyway, we see this. Well, the midwives don't cooperate. Pharaoh sees that, that children are still being born, male children are still being born. So then he appeals to his whole nation, and he says, Look, any of you who come across any Hebrews who are having male children, you take those children and throw them into the Nile. Well, now, why the Nile? Why not just strangulate him and kill him right there? Why throw him in the Nile? This is very interesting. The Nile is Egypt's premier god. So, what Pharaoh is doing, he is cloaking his desire to murder these children to affect his prejudice, and he's cloaking it in religious garb. And there has been much injustice. There's been much cruelty perpetrated in the name of religion down throughout the history of mankind. Do you know that? We have Islam, the, 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 the world system, the this system of Islam, and the theory, the, the belief of a jihad, a holy war, to kill people who are not, is not Muslim. That's, that's insane. That is absolutely insane. But you see, that's just another example of that which is done in the name of religious practice. And Pharaoh does the same thing. Kill these babies, and we'll make it look like it's a sacrifice to the Nile God. Well, we're not told anything more about that. But again, Satan is doing his best to destroy Israel. Now, the next section, chapter 2, first four verses, we have the birth of Moses. Now, this is inspiring. Because Moses' mother and father obey Pharaoh. Pharaoh they obey the Pharaoh, and they take Moses, and they give him to the Nile. Yeah, they do. Don't they put Moses into the Nile, albeit he's in a little basket? They understand the Egyptian mentality, and so they're going to comply in a way. They put Moses in a basket, and they put him out on the Nile. Now, I want you to see God's sense of humor. This little basket is floating down on the Nile. Who comes down to the, to the Nile? Pharaoh's daughter. Not just some, any Egyptian, Pharaoh's daughter comes. What an interesting coincidence. We call coincidences divine appointments. Nothing happens by accident. God's design and purpose is being affected here. So. This little basket floats down the Nile. Pharaoh's daughter's down there bathing or offering sacrifice or doing whatever she's doing at the Nile, which is customary. And she, lo and behold, they take this basket in, they open it up, and they have, guess what? A gift from the Nile. (laughs) The Nile god has presented Pharaoh's household with a gift. He's rejected the sacrifice, and he's brought this into Pharaoh's own household. What's Pharaoh going to do? He's got to take the baby in. Moses, who is ultimately going to deliver Israel from bondage in Egypt, is raised up in Pharaoh's own household. Right under his own nose. And Pharaoh's got to pay for his education and all of his food. Isn't that great? Has God got a sense of humor? He is awesome. He is awesome. Well, anyway, that's what happens. And you know the account. Pharaoh grows up. He's 40 years old now. He's grown up, he's been trained, educated, and fairly influenced by Egyptian culture and society and religious practices. So now he goes out. Now he's aware of his Hebrew heritage. He knows he's an Israelite. He's aware of that. He goes out one day, he's 40 years old, he sees an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite. Now we already saw Pharaoh uh, resorting to his own human wisdom, and that led to some real problems, uh, murder and so forth. Now, now here we see the second example of a person resorting to human wisdom, human folly. And so he sees this mistreatment going on, and he is going to take upon himself the call to be the rescuer of Israel in the person of this poor Israelite who's being mistreated. So what he does, he kills the Egyptian, hoping that he he can trust in secrecy, hoping he can trust in his own... Royal appointment and heritage and privileges and money. Do you know anybody like that? Have you heard about that? People like that who are well to do, influential, commit a crime, and uh, seek to be insulated because of their privilege? But God knows everything, doesn't He? He brings all the hidden things to light. All of a sudden, Moses discovers that this crime is not hidden, that he is guilty, and he flees for his life. He's got to get out of town. He goes to a place called the the Midian Desert. There he meets a man named Jethro. Jethro has a daughter, Zipporah. He marries Zipporah. He's there for 40 years. You say, why 40 years? Well, I think because he grew up in Egypt for 40 years, and it probably is going to take another 40 years to cleanse out of him all the remnants of Egyptian influence. You say, well, why would God go through all that? Why would God take him down to Egypt for 40 years? Why didn't God just work a different way? Why did he have to raise him up in Egypt? Because he is a symbol of Christ. He's a symbol of you and I, that we rise up in our own pride, our own arrogance, our own abilities and talents, and we say, don't I look great? I have all these wonderful gifts. Boy, God can sure use me. When, in fact, Jesus is the example, and Paul talks about him, he says, He who was rich became poor for our sakes, that we who were poor could become rich. See, it talks about an emptying. Beloved, if you're going to be used of God, you cannot exalt yourself. You can't boast in your own abilities and skills. You've got to go through a period of emptying, a period where you come to see that you have nothing to offer. You may be wonderfully gifted in lots of human talents and abilities, And you may be able to bluff a lot of people, but you can't bluff God. And God could never bless the work of your hand unless it's him that's working through you, not you doing the work. Are you with me? So Moses has got to be on that desert 40 years being emptied, being emptied, being emptied. So he becomes a usable vessel. Now, while he's out there in that 40 years, one day he's tending his father's flocks. Now, can you imagine Moses waking up thinking, Oh, I'm going to encounter a burning bush today and God's going to talk to me. <laughs> yeah. You don't know what's going to happen day to day, do you? No. It's got to be a walk of faith every single day. Anyway, Moses is out there in the desert. It's apparently extremely hot. Now, this is not an uncommon thing in the Midian desert for bushes to uh, spontaneously combust, burst into flame. The, uh, the, the, the heat that's required is not that great. And the desert heat is, is, is indeed great in, that, in those settings. So bushes all the time, would, and even today, would just spontaneously combust. But what is unique is that if the bush is on fire, it's not burning up. This gets Moses' attention. <laughs> would it get your attention? Would you go, oh, bush. Whoa. He watches it for a while. That bush is not burning up. Hey, dude, let's go check that out. <laughs> So he goes and checks it out. And he no sooner gets up to the bush, and all of a sudden, a voice talks to him. I don't know about you. That would freak me. That would absolutely freak me. All of a sudden, his voice is Moses, Moses. What? Who's talking? Moses, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. Uh Uh-oh. Big time. So Moses takes off his shoes. He knows he's in the presence of God. God introduces himself to Moses. Isn't that nice? And then he begins to reveal reveal his plan to Moses, how he wants to use Moses to set Israel free from bondage in Egypt. Upon hearing this, Moses says, Great idea. This is awesome. Boy, I've been waiting for a chance like this. And Moses jumps right in there, right? No, no, Moses says, wait a minute, who am I? Now, on one hand, we, we kind of look down disdainfully at Moses for his reluctance to serve. On the other hand, it's really the fruit of what God has done. God has truly emptied him. Moses really is saying, man, who, what you, me? Uh, ain't no way. In no way. When Ralph Moore, who founded this church, came to me and told me that I was to follow him, take his job as the pastor of this church, how do you follow a legend? I said, "Uh uh-uh. No way. Not me. No chance. I was a green rookie. And Moses understands that he has nothing to offer. And so God speaks to him some more. Moses says, well, listen, even if I go, if I consent to go, who shall I say sent me? What credentials? God says, tell him I am sent you. I am is a statement of absoluteness. The buck stops here. There ain't no other. I am sent you. That's pretty impressive. The final word. Then he outlines the mission to Moses. And then he says, in effect, down in the verses 16 through 22 of Exodus chapter 3, he says, "Now listen. When you go, the people are going to receive you. The people are ready. And believe me, when people you talk to, people who are desperate, people who know they're in a desperate situation, what do they want? Good news. They want more bad news? No, they want good news." When you understand that and you share it with people and get them to see that they're in a desperate situation, in other words, you tell them the bad news, then you prepare them for the good news. The Israelites were prepared for some good news. Because, see, while God is working in Moses' life for 40 years out here in the desert, he's working in the life of Israel in Egypt. Now imagine this. How many of you could could relate to this? Let's say that you come... To Manhattan Beach. You move in. You inherit the family estate. You inherit the family business. You have all kinds of money, all kinds of creature comforts. You've got a BMW, you've got a Mercedes Benz, you've got a Cadillac, you've got a Porsche. You've got everything you could possibly want. You've got a big fat bank account. The family business is going wonderfully. Why would you ever want to move out of Manhattan Beach? Now, you're a Christian. Would you be comfortable? Would you be comfortable? Be honest. Yeah, doesn't that sound pretty good? It does to me. I'd love a brand new Porsche. I'd love to have a brand new Porsche. Man, I'd love to rip around these streets in a brand new Porsche. I drove an NSX. You know that Honda, that new Honda? Incredible car. Incredible car. My neighbor has one. (laughs) Covet, covet, covet. Bright red, you're right. But here is, now I want you to see the parallel. Here's Israel. They've been in Egypt, in the land of Goshen, the choicest part of Egypt, for 400 years. They've multiplied great flocks, they have lost their pilgrim vision. They're settled down. They're comfortable. It's going to take dynamite to get them out of there. So God is going to bring dynamite. And he does so in the person of that new pharaoh, that new king. And he brings oppression against Israel. He makes their life very hard. He begins to create in them a sense of distaste for Egypt. Now, he's working in Israel simultaneously while he's working in Moses' life over here in the Midian desert. And then at the appointed hour, he's going to bring them together to God's Israel, to exit Egypt. Isn't that beautiful? So God is always working. He's working in your life right now, preparing you to minister to this other person, or he's working in someone else's life right now, preparing to minister to you. And all this is going on. And then at the right moment, there's going to be a divine appointment in which you're going to meet, and ministry is going to happen if you're receptive. If you're receptive. So try to be open. Be open to what God wants to do in your life. Okay, so now uh, Israel, life is really getting tough for them. Moses, all the time over here in the desert, God's talking to him. Moses still is not convinced he wants to go. Indeed, in chapter 4, between verses 10 and 17 if you're following along in the Daily Bible, page 101, Moses says, can we send somebody else? I mean, he's really intimidated. He's backpedaling. He doesn't want to do this. Is there any way we can send somebody else to do this? Now I want you to notice the next sentence. And then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. There's a point at which if God's calling you to ministry, if He's calling you to do something, and you don't do it, and you keep backpedaling, God's anger will burn against you. He loves you, but his anger will burn against you. Don't get God ticked off at you. Learn to cooperate. How many parents understand this with their children? How many children learn it from their parents, right? Do what I said. I love you. You're my precious child. But if you don't do what I say, we're going to go to the woodshed. Right? All right. So you see that principle reflected here. Now, down in verses 21 through 23 in chapter 4, Moses is finally convinced to go. And God tells him, just as he's prepared to leave, he says, uh, do all these wonders, you know, turn the the stick into a snake and do the leper's hand trick and all that stuff, and to demonstrate to Pharaoh that, that this is all real. These are your credentials. He says, but I will harden his heart. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, this is a very, very misunderstood section of the book of Exodus and a very misunderstood uh, passage. And I want to take a moment to discuss the hardening of Pharaoh's heart with you. And to do so, we have to understand the context of the plagues. Now, we're not going to examine the plagues. You can read about those yourself. But let me just give you some historical background with respect to the plagues and then the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. The plagues are not just a contest between the Lord and Pharaoh. That's not what it's all about. Pharaoh, you have to understand, is more than just an individual. Pharaoh was the living symbol of all of Egyptian belief and all of Egyptian society. Pharaoh was the focal point of all Egyptian life, belief, and society. And Moses, in facing uh, Pharaoh was not just facing the stubbornness of, a, of one man, but he was really, literally facing the weight, the incredible weight of a civilization that had persisted for more than 2,000 years. That's what it was against, up against. But even beyond that, um, the real victims of the plagues, the real focus of the plagues was not Pharaoh, not the Egyptian people, but more were e- Egypt's nature gods, Egypt had a pantheon of nature gods that they worshipped. The Nile, the sun god Ra, uh, they even worshipped um, uh, the frogs. There was a frog goddess who was supposed to help women in childbirth. In fact, all the plagues are designed to attack the gods and the goddesses of Egypt to show them that they were powerless. And indeed, the, uh, the plagues are in increasing ferocity to show the powerlessness of these gods to protect their worshipers. And uh, also, uh, there's an important lesson for Israel here because they need to see that uh, that there is only one true God, and that God is Yahweh, and there are no other gods. In fact, God is sovereign over all people everywhere. They're to learn that lesson through this whole scene as they observe what God does in the context of, of Egypt. Now, with that understanding of the reason for the plagues, it's really to demythologize Egyptian culture. There are no other gods. They're worshiping demonic powers. Okay? Now, with respect to Pharaoh, again, understanding who Pharaoh is, he's the literal embodiment of all of this philosophy and belief. 2,000 years of it. And so God is going to have to do some awesome things, some mighty things, to create in Pharaoh this understanding that his whole system amounts to nothing, in effect. Now, when we talk about hardening Pharaoh's heart, um, there's three Hebrew words used in that whole section uh, regarding or in connection with this hardening. Three Hebrew words, all translated harden. The first word is kwashah, Quashah, and that quite simply means stubborn. That word is used twice in this whole section. It's used in chapter 7, verse 3, and chapter 13, verse 15. The second word is kabed, kabed, and it means heavy or insensitive or immovable. And that word also, interestingly, is used in conjunction describing the swarm of flies describing the cattle plague, the hailstorm, and the locusts. Immovable, heavy pestilence, plagues on the land. And the third word, chazak, means to strengthen. Now that's, a, that's an interesting word. The second two Hebrew words are used alternatively throughout the passage. Now in chapter 5, when Moses comes to Pharaoh, they have this first interview And Moses announces to Pharaoh that God says, let the people go. Let them go out in the desert three days to worship. This was not an uncommon thing to Pharaoh. It was a very common practice to release people from work, from labor, to give them three days off to go worship. Very common practice in Egypt. So this was not something new to Pharaoh. But what Pharaoh's response is in refusing, he says, uh, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. What he is saying in effect is this that the needs of the state have priority over the whims of some God who's outside the official pantheon of gods of Egypt. In other words, we're not, who is this God? Just because he wants your people to come out? No way. The needs of the state are more important. We're going to keep you guys making bricks. We need the bricks more than you need to go worship. So Pharaoh exhibits a very resistant attitude there. Then Moses, of course, you know, does the trick with the snakes and then goes on. We're told in chapter 7, verse 13, Pharaoh's heart became hard. Pharaoh's heart became strong. The Hebrew word is chazak. It became strong. He was strongly resistant to any evidence. Then is the, the, the first plague is the water of the Nile, all the water turned to blood. The first three plagues, which encompass the, uh, the, the Nile turning to blood, the frogs and the ticks, are really a softening up process. God is coming and he's softening up the people, preparing Pharaoh, trying to soften up his heart. The second three are really uh, intense in terms of creating uh, loss and suffering. The uh, second three have to do with the, with the flies. They're biting flies, they're not just ordinary house flies. They're known as dog flies and they bite and their bites are very, very painful. And then the cattle plague and then ultimately the boils. Up to the point of the boils. As you read through the passage, you find that every instance after the first five plagues Pharaoh hardens his own heart. He makes his own heart strong. In other words, there's no impact. After the plague of boils, which decimates his magicians, brings terrible suffering on all the people, we're told at that point, this is the very first time this is said, God now hardens Pharaoh's heart. Now on the surface of it, it seems really unfair. You know, how can Pharaoh... Pharaoh, Pharaoh has no choice. He has no option. God is sovereignly working to harden his heart. Why? I think it's important for us to understand. Here is the reason. Is God not God over all people? Does God not want all people to repent and come to a knowledge and saving grace? Yes. Second Peter chapter three, verse nine. God is patient, doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Everyone. Listen to what he says in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23. He asks a rhetorical question. He says, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? The obvious answer is no. He says, rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? God's desire, incredible as it may sound, is to save Pharaoh and save the Egyptians also. And so he exhibits great patience in bringing about these plagues, demonstrating to Pharaoh that he is sovereign in the hopes that Pharaoh would turn to him not out of fear or faint-heartedness, but out of repentance. Because unless one repents, he will never come to a knowledge of the truth. God doesn't want Pharaoh just to let Israel go because he's afraid. He wants him to repent. He wants Israel out of there, but he also wants to save Pharaoh and to use Pharaoh and save the Egyptians. But in event, this does not happen as you read the balance of the account. So God, you see, right at a point where Pharaoh's heart is weakening, right at a point where he's terrified, right at a point where he's about to give in, God comes and he has to strengthen Pharaoh's heart so he won't give in because of fear. Hopefully, With the continuation of the plagues, Pharaoh would come to a place where he'd say, I give, I acknowledge that you are God. And then he would become a believer, and he would lead all of Egypt into the knowledge of the truth. Now, of course, this does not happen. Sadly, that's the case with many, many people. They hear the gospel, they hear the testimonies, they see your life, they see the transformation they're undergoing. I have a friend who is undergoing terrific suffering. I brought him to church. I sat down with him for hours and talked to him, and yet he continues to harden his heart. Beloved, I believe there's a point at which when you harden your heart sufficiently, you pass a point of no return. And I think at that point, God turns you over to destruction. And what you have uh, happening in chapter 10 verse 1, and then all the rest of the references to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, all the rest of the references are God saying, I have hardened Pharaoh's heart. God just takes over and in effect says, if this is what Pharaoh wants, this is what Pharaoh's going to get. If he persists in disobedience and he persists in unrepentance, then I will ensure that his heart remains hard. What a tragedy. God is very, very patient, but there is a limit to his patience. Do you remember King Saul? We'll read about Saul later on, and when Saul persisted in his prideful rebellion, God sent to Saul a deceiving spirit to deceive Paul or uh, Saul and to allow him to persist in his ways of destruction. In the New Testament, in Corinthians, Paul writes to the church, he says, there's one amongst you who is persisting in sin, and you've not done anything about it. Therefore, and he's talking about one who's sleeping with his father's wife, with his stepmother, the church hasn't even addressed it. And he says, I have judged that man, and I have turned him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, for the eventual salvation of his soul. So God will turn people over. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you presume on God's grace. God is patient, loving, kind, compassionate, but he also has a plan and a purpose, and if you're resistant, he will get your attention one way or another. I promise you. So we see this happening with Pharaoh. God now begins to harden his heart because he is unwilling to respond to God's grace to him. Now... The last plague is the plague of death. That's the 10th plague. There are 10 plagues. The first nine, they come in successions of threes. The last one is the plague of death. That's where the the angel of death is going to come on the land. God goes to Moses and says, all right, now get ready to leave. here's what I want you to do. Part of the preparation to leave is you're to go into the flocks and you're to to get a one-year-old lamb or one-year-old goat, male, without flaw, in other words, a perfect animal, you're to take it into your house and you're to bond with it. You're to bond with it. It's to become very, very special to you. You're to develop an attachment to it. And then you're to sacrifice that animal. Very hard to do. It's one thing to sacrifice an animal you have no attachment to. It's a whole other thing to bond with that animal and then sacrifice it, isn't it? So they're to sacrifice and then they're to take the blood from that sacrifice and they're to put it on their doorpost, the top and the sides. Why in the world would God want them to do that? Why on the top and the sides? You see a picture in that? What's it a picture of? The cross. cross. That ultimately one day there would be another sacrifice in blood on a cross, which would in effect be the open door for the salvation, for the freedom, for the exodus of sinners from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sins of the world. So God gives them the the ceremony. He tells them exactly what to do. Uh, The Israelites do it. They obey him. Every Israelite household that night sacrifices the lamb, puts the blood on the doorposts. The angel of death comes into the land. Every household that has the blood, the angel passes over. The angel passes over. That's where the Jewish feast of Passover comes from. And then God gives them instructions through Moses to every year commemorate that tremendous event in the life of Israel. And so every generation, the children would come and part of the Passover festival, part of the Passover meal is the children come and say, why do we do this? And then the parents explain to them the story and they pass on generation after generation after generation God's deliverance of Israel from the bondage of Egypt and you and I do the same thing when our kids come to us and say why do we go to church why do we read the Bible why do we pray why do we believe in Jesus we rehearse to them the story of salvation played out on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago which was prefigured by the exodus of Israel out of Egypt 2,000 years before that you follow so they play that out the angel of death comes now prior to them leaving God says, now tell all the people to go to your neighbors, go all to all the Egyptians, and tell them, ask them for money. Ask them for gifts. He says, I've already predisposed their hearts, so when you come, they're going to give you gold and silver and jewels and fine cloth and everything, everything that they own, they're going to give it to you. They are, in effect, going to pay you to get out of here. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. Now, why is God telling them to get that stuff? So they can go out and spend it on themselves? They do it, though, don't they? They build a golden calf. We'll look at that later. But God means for them to take all that gold and silver and so forth and use it in worship to him. It's a very, very important principle there. We'll see that when we come to it. Now, they they come out of Egypt. They're freed. Moses leads them out, some two million people. God is leading them. They're following the Lord. He's leading them. And guess where he leads them? To the Red Sea. Great, no boats. (laughs) They're sitting there thinking, what are we going to do? How are we going to get across this thing? They look back. They're thinking about backtracking. As soon as they look back, they see this cloud of dust. Pharaoh and his army is chasing them. He's let all this free labor go. The whole economy of Egypt is going to suffer. Even though they've suffered tremendously, he's going to go get them back. He's hardened his heart to that extent. So the, the Israelites look back. They freak out. Okay? I want you to look with me in chapter 14, verses 10 through 14, page 114. Oh, isn't that cool? Chapter 14, verses 10 through 14, page 114. All right, stay with me. Stay with me. They look back, they see the Pharaoh and his armies coming. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord. And then they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt you brought us into the desert to die? Man, God just brought him out. He just exhibited his power through ten plagues. And now they're thinking fatalistically. Oh, it's all over. Oh, it was me. We had such great hopes, but it doesn't look possible now. Anybody relate to that? All right. He says, what have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? Yeah. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. No, it wasn't. We, you know, we have a, a, oftentimes a very small God from our point of view. We need to expand our, our perceptions. We need to walk by faith. God wants to do awesome things. Yeah. He's the God of the impossible. He calls things into existence that didn't previously exist. We limit him. We limit him to what we can see that he could possibly do. That which we can do. Oh, there's no hope. We could never turn that person around. Oh, oh, that person could never. Wait a minute. Sure they can. Let's just start praying. Let's start trusting God. Now look at this. They're freaked out, but Moses answered the people. I love this. Boy, you ought to memorize this. Do not be afraid. Stand firm. Stand firm. And you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you tomorrow. Today. Today. Whatever your circumstance, whatever your situation, you stand firm, you trust in the Lord, you will see deliverance today. You'll see it today. It may not be the deliverance you're looking for, but it'll be the deliverance that God wants to bring you today to prepare you for the deliverance tomorrow. But it'll never happen if you don't stand firm and trust him. That doesn't mean there's no activity. It means that trusting him and standing firm is that you do things his way. he says, the Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Oh. Ooh, man, that's the hardest thing in the world for us to do is be still. Ooh. Right? God says, be still. Know that I'm God. Know that I got things under control. I know what I'm doing. I got a, pro- I got a program here. I got my agenda. Trust me, he says. Be still. And then, of course, you know, Moses sticks his rod over the Red Sea. This is incredible. How many saw the Ten Commandments? You saw Charlton Heston do this? Great. (laughs) Cecil, Cecil B. DeMille, tremendous. This was not just a theatrical effect. This is history. This stuff really happened. We're not talking in terms of just allegory. These aren't metaphors these are real historical accounts. Moses stood up there by faith, stuck his rod over the Red Sea, and that baby separated. <laughs> awesome power. You face, you face an impossible circumstance. You face an impossible circumstance, and the Egyptian army is bearing down on you, and you're starting to freak out. Trust God. Don't trust your own expediencies. Don't trust your own foolish human wisdom. Don't step outside of God's will. Trust God. He will deliver you. And so all of Israel, 2 million people, walk through this dry land. Dry land. It's not even soggy. God makes a dry for them. (laughs) He attends to the details. So they walk through on the dry land. They get on the other side, here comes Pharaoh's army, rushing through, chasing them, and God causes the waters to collapse on them, wiping out the entire Egyptian army. Now, an interesting corollary to this, and you can check this out. You go back and you study, if you will, you look up ancient history, secular ancient history, and you'll find about the same time period, Egypt was a premier world power on the, on the world scene. And it's about the same time that all of a sudden, and secular historians can't account for this, all of a sudden Egypt disappears from the world scene as being a power. Secular historians don't have a clue as to why they disappear suddenly off the world scene. (laughs) Bible scholars know why. Because their whole army is destroyed. They cease to be a world power. And you can validate that from secular history. Isn't that exciting? So the Bible is true. Alright. So he delivers them. The Egyptians are destroyed and they get to the other side. When Moses sees all this, we have the Song of Moses in chapter 15, verses 1 through um, 18. Beautiful passage. When you find that God delivers you, sing a song of praise, glorify his name, give him thanks for his faithfulness to you. Now, What that opens the door to now is a period of transition and training. This is very, very important. A period of transition and training. Not only does it apply to Israel, but it applies to you and I. They're going to be on a march now to Sinai, where God is going to give them the law, Mount Sinai. And so during this march, they've come out of Egypt, they've gone through the Red Sea, they've been delivered from their enemies, Now God's got them all where he wants them, in the desert, where he is going to train them. He's going to bring them through a period of transition, transitioning from their old way of thinking, their old way of living, their old way of being dependent, transitioning to a dependence upon him. Now the only way he can teach them this and train them is guess how? What's God's favorite way of teaching us? trials, troubles, unexpected difficulties, and how do we respond to them? Well, we'll look at these real quickly, and we're going to move rather fast through this section. The first place they come to, they're three days away, and they find out that they come to a place where they're thirsty and the water is unsuitable to drink. And what do they do? They turn to each other and they say, No sweat. God can handle this. God can handle this. He's going to provide potable water for us. No problem. Lord, we're waiting on you. And then somebody goes down and gets a cup of water, drinks, it, and says, Yep, God did it. Right? Now, what happens? they reach this place, they're disappointed, beloved, unexpected difficulties when they're encountered lead to disappointment. And disappointment can lead, doesn't always necessarily have to, but it can lead to grumbling. So they what? Grumble. Uh Uh-oh, problem. Darn. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Wine. They sit in the corner and suck their thumbs. Have you ever done that? You become a Christian, and someone's promised you it's going to be all a bed of roses from here on in. Eh uh-uh. They lied to you. You become a Christian, God's going to take you out in the desert. He's going to take you out in the desert like he did to Moses, like he did to Israel, like he did to Abraham. Because why? He wants to reshape you. I don't say this to scare you. I say this to give you cause for hope because God is going to do a new work in your life. And so when the unexpected difficulties come, though it brings disappointment, though it's not going as fast as you want, though your agenda is being fulfilled, know for sure that God's agenda is being fulfilled. He's in control. He's working in your life for your good and for His great purpose. And therefore, with that mentality, though you may be disappointed or tempted toward disappointment, you will not grumble. You'll say, Lord, thank you anyway. I trust you anyway for your provision, even in this difficult situation. And you know, it's really interesting to me that oftentimes when we face a great immediate danger, once that immediate danger is over, we often then turn to complain about the smaller problems around us. We're never satisfied. We never, never really wait. Well, the next thing is the murmuring for food. They go further on into the desert. They run out of food. The desert, we're told the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. He said, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. Oh, God could kill us. You know, rather than desert, we'd much rather he kill us in, in Egypt. They said, at least there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you brought us out in this desert desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Great! Wonderful insight. What have you let us out here for? Moses! But I want you to know God's patience. God is very patient. He understands they're just entering into the process, when you're entering the process, God is very, very patient. It's like a, a parent with a little child The little child poops his diapers all the time, right? Does the parent get angry at the child for doing it? No, it's part of the process. Part of the process of getting the child to a place where they potty trained and so forth, and the child begins to mature. And all through that process, any reasonable sane parent will be very, very patient. But when the child is 15, 16 years old and still pooping in his diapers, (laughs) there is need then for addressing that with a different means so but God is still very very patient and so when they cry out for meat and for food there's no food in the camp presumably then God says all right I'm going to provide for them." and so then he brings quail in so they have lots of meat and he also brings a special kind of food they go out from the they go out in the mornings they wake up and they go out and on the ground there's this substance all over the ground and they're told to pick it up for it is given to them by God to eat and they go outside, they look on the ground, and they say, what is this? What is it? That's what manna means. Manna means, what is it? So they're going to eat what is it for the rest of their time while they're out in the wilderness. God provides, does he not? He doesn't always provide according to our agenda or the way we would want him to. Who would think that God would cause manna to be on the ground and there to pick it up and and eat it? Crazy. Anyway. Now I want you to look over in chapter 16, quickly. Verse 36, page 119. Chapter 16, verse 36. The Israelites ate manna 40 years. That sound wonderful? How many people would just think that would be absolutely wonderful? Y'all ought to raise your hands, every single one of you. I mean, that's God's food. We should say, all right, manna for 40 years, hallelujah. (laughs) Israel grumbled, didn't they? The writer says they ate it for 40 years, every single day for 40 years, until they reached the land of Canaan, until they reached the border of Canaan. What's Canaan called? The promised land. God provided for them wonderfully every day until they reached the promised land. You know what? We grumble just like the Israelites grumble about what God's provision for us. Jesus talks about himself. He says in John's gospel, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the manna that has come from heaven for you. And we're to feed on Jesus every single day. We're to rise up in the morning, as the Israelites did, rise up in the morning, first thing, and feed on the bread of life. Not despise it. Because God has given it to us for our sustenance for that day. To strengthen us for that day. Provide for us that day. How many parents have children who don't like vegetables? You tell the kids, eat your vegetables, they're good for you. But the kids despise the vegetables. They only want junk food. How many of us prefer junk food to the manna? How many of us prefer television, the movies, being entertained with a newspaper, Time magazine? We'll read other things before we'll devote ourselves to feeding on God's word, being nourished by God's word. Anyway... We're to do that, a steady diet of the word until we come to the promised land. So there's several events here in which God provides. The whole idea is training them to trust in the Lord, training them to see that God is faithful to them. Now, the last two events we're going to look at real quickly and then we're going to dismiss. The last two events have to do with the Amalekites and the reunion of Moses and Jethro. Now, these two events are very, very significant. God is transitioning them He's preparing them. He's training them to depend on him. He's going to get them to Sinai, where he's going to give them the law. That's the next session we're going to look at next week. But in preparation for the law, for the receiving of the law, he's going to do two more works in them specifically to prepare them for the law. The first one is the warfare with Amalek, or the Amalekites. The Amalekites were a very, very, very strong tribe living in this area. They were notorious notoriously known for uh, Attacking weak and helpless people just for the sport of it So they were a very cruel people and God is going to destroy them now What happens is that God tells Moses to have Joshua go down in the valley and engage The Amalekites in battle. This is the very first time Israel is going to be in warfare against its enemy and Moses is up on the hilltop now. Do you remember what Moses is doing? He's got his arms up in the air, right? He's holding up the staff of God. And the whole point of this is that as long as Moses' arms are in the air, Israel is going to prevail in the battle. When Moses' arms go down, the Amalekites prevail. So you can imagine the Israelites, they know about this. They're in battle saying, are his arms still up? Are his arms, can anybody see? Because Moses' arms raised to God are a sign of dependence on him. The whole nation, in the midst of warfare now, is not just food, in the midst of a battle for their very life, is called on to see that the upraised arms, the outstretched arms to God is a symbol that they need to continue to walk in faith and trust that God will give the battle into their hands. Now, when Moses' arms go down, they lose heart. They lose faith. And so what happens is Moses' arms get real, real tired. I mean, he's out there for many hours. So they they prop him up on a rock. They sit him down on a rock. And two guys hold his arms up. They don't care just as long as his arms are up in the air. That's cool. And you know that they prevail in the battle. Well, the effect of the victory in battle is this. One, it serves to unify the people. It serves to unify them. They see in battle that they can gain victory if they trust in the Lord. And secondly, it gives them a great sense of encouragement that God is for them. Now this is very, very important in moving them to Sinai because God is going to give them the law. The second event is the issue with Jethro, uh, Moses' father-in-law. They had this reunion. Jethro comes and visits him, see this huge mass of people and Moses is sitting down having interviews with each one trying to settle all the disputes all by himself. Two million people! No way! And so Jethro says, Moses, this is dumb, man. He says, you need to appoint some other people to help out. And hence, we have the Jethro model of governing the church through multiple shepherds, multiple leaders, counselors, and so forth. Um, The pastor can't do it all himself. And so we have to distribute the workload, especially of a large congregation as ours, amongst some 300 people we have in leadership in our church. Isn't that exciting? God has blessed us wonderfully with many, many people involved in leadership in our church in various levels. So we picked up on that Jethro model, and we think it's very, very great wisdom to do things God's way in managing a large, large group of God's people. And now this will prepare, this puts in place now a structure, an organization, for when God gives a law, that God's law will be disseminated throughout all of Israel in an equitable Uh, a a speedy manner rather than all just coming right through Moses to all the people individually so it's a very very uh, effective structure that God gives through Jethro and incidentally in that passage Jethro becomes a believer his father-in-law becomes a believer as a result of seeing all that God has done and seeing Moses' humble attitude that Moses can receive from his father-in-law very interesting dynamic there okay we're going to conclude with this and I want you to uh, continue reading on ahead, and next week we're going to begin to study the law of God. This is a very, very significant section, so read ahead, and we're going to study and look at the law and how we respond to the law and, in fact, God's reasons for giving it. Okay? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for the continuity I thank you, Lord, that though your word covers some 6,000 years, Lord, written by so many different people, it's all inspired by your spirit, and it so speaks to the reality of life, speaks to our issues, talks to our heart. God, as you have delivered Israel from Egypt, you've delivered us from the bondage of Satan, the bondage of sin, the domain of darkness, and we give you thanks for that. Father, allow us, enable us to learn from these passages that we may trust you as you take us through difficult times, as you train us and transition us, Lord, from people who have learned to become dependent on ourselves and this life to becoming dependent upon you and trusting in your way, in your word, in your design, that as we bring our lives in line, God, that you would indeed bless us and prosper us so that we might share with all those around us and be a light in our families, our communities, our workplaces, every place. Lord God, that you would be lifted up. We give you thanks this morning. Now keep your heads bowed.